Welcome to episode 18 of Expanding Beyond. Hi, Monica. How are you doing? Hello, everyone. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm enjoying the raising temperatures uh, and the bigger amount of sun out there, um, not only in terms of not so many clouds, but also in terms of many more hours. Yeah. So it's uh, it's nice. Uh, yeah, this, the weekend was super, super pretty and warm, I think up to 15 degrees or something. Well, Celsius. Yes. <laughs> and it, it, it gets cold in the evening, but during the day, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, the weekend was nice. The, it was a nice uh, break from from last week for me. So that was the first week at my new job. And as my new job is my uh, an older job for me as well, there was probably a lot more happening in the first week than for <laughs> other people because uh, there were people that were going coming with very specific questions to me basically on the first day already. <laughs> Tell us more, Urban. Uh, as <laughs> I, I said, I don't know, <laughs> basically. And I tried to make sure that they understand that I um, have forgotten stuff in two years and stuff has happened. It happens, Although yes. not as much as you might expect in two years. That hmm. Always less happening technically as you imagine, I guess. Yes. All right. Um, so for this episode, we decided to pick a bit more technical topic um, than we had the last few uh, episodes. And this one is about the monolith and the microservices and probably the sweet spot somewhere in between. Yes. Where do we start? Do you want to? Where do we start? Hmm. I can start. When I started at, at Freeletics, that was the first time I came across what I thought were microservices. Mm -hmm. um, it was an interesting endeavor to move from a monolith to uh, services. Um, over time, I figured out that those weren't microservices. Um, <laughs> so that was my first touch points uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the topic. So I think that we have kind of a false dichotomy right now in the industry. We either talk about monoliths or microservices. And I don't often hear all the ranges in between. Mostly, like the most renowned one would be uh, SOA, service-oriented architecture, mm -hmm. where you have bigger services and not microservices. Because if we're by micro, we intend things that do one and one thing only, very, very specialized. Then we are seriously talking about, like, how to say that in English, um, units uh, of, like, this is one operation that is yeah. done by this uh, by this piece of code. And that has all its own, its own challenges uh, in there. Yeah, I think... I don't know. We we both come from the Ruby community and uh, from from the web side of things. So it, for a longer time, I, I think for Rails, it has been like, oh, you build just this one Rails app for everything. And then just like with uh, object-oriented programming, there was at some point this, this swing in the other direction, mm. right? And then I think, I mean, you're never going to get rid of the complexities of the system, right? So you can either have nope. it 
in the code or you have it somewhere in the communication between the microservices, right? And this is sort of the thing to keep in mind, the complexity is not going to get less. It's just going to move around a bit. And yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I must say, I've also not really worked in a company that had real microservices, however you want to define it, because I don't know if there's a proper definition even. Yeah. Um, or I never bothered to look it up. Um, <laughs> I, I There, I I agree with you. I think you have a very good point when you say that, you know, the complexity is just changes place um, from a pure developer perspective. What I uh, what I like in terms of how services uh, help you shape your your application is that having services and that's that's for me probably the biggest advantage. Like having services enforces you to think in terms of domains. Yeah, like it's very easy to fall into you know old patterns. It's like oh, let's just put this small method here in this class, what's, it's not going to hurt. And then just, you know, monkey see, monkey do, people keep doing that with, with explicit areas of, uh, of, uh, of the domain, then you have to think like, does this belong here? Does this belong there? Yeah. I mean, to me, this is actually the bigger, the bigger advantage of, I mean, there's many reasons for splitting up a monolith into maybe not microservice, but several services or maybe just parts of it out of the main thing and to me the actually the bigger thing is actually that that enforcing the scope thing because mm -hmm. there's always the good intention of saying yeah we just uh program it in that way that we never do these things right you never put the method somewhere you never grab the data from where you shouldn't really but it is just very hard to enforce that stuff, I found. Yes. And I'm not convinced that you can really do that easily. I mean, I mean, on the other hand, you have stuff like Shopify, right? I think mm -hmm. they have some tooling around that and they can make it work, but they're a bit bigger company. As well. Exactly. This <laughs> would have been my next point. Like, I yes, probably the discipline that it requires you is the the biggest advantage in here. What often people don't think about when they go for service-oriented architecture or microservices or, or whatnot is also all the additional complexity that needs to be taken care of by the rest of the org, be it processes, be it infrastructure, be it um, team boundaries and a bunch of other things that do have an impact on what you as a company are able to do with your application. It's like, be it a monolith or be it a, a microservice to the full extent um, company, uh, having a, micro, a monolith or a microservices, it's, it depends a lot on what you can afford. Companies like Google that have terabytes of uh, code base and it's one monorepo, it's one big thing, they can afford to solve other engineering problems around having that kind of uh, pattern there. So you have to pick and choose over time in the lifetime of your company uh, what, uh, what, what you want. So, I mean, it, to me, it seems like a very natural progression to start off with basically the monolith 
because mm-hmm. you have everything in one place. If if you're a small startup, you need to move fast, and it's just. I mean, there you you make the trade-off that you actually do that stuff, right? You grab the data from where yes. you can get it, where it's convenient, and then you end up with sometimes some spaghetti code or whatever not so nice uh, bit. And that also works because you're normally a very small team. So you you are sort of in sync and you do it all together. Um, so where I work, we it sometimes it breaks a bit down because then you have multiple teams working on the same code base. And then you have to basically sync deploys, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is just a, and you have to sync uh, the final testing round of, of more multiple teams. And that's just very inconvenient. And you have to sync these days also sometimes because it's a monolith. And if you change something in one place, you can have various bugs in completely different places that other teams are in theory responsible for, <laughs> yeah. right? So this is also not ideal and there's also one of the one of the reasons for me that it might make sense to split stuff up to say hey these are the areas for that one team and we can at least to a certain extent test that stuff uh, separately as well and then you can sort of decouple deploys from various teams and maybe maybe you can sort of not in overall get faster but at least on a team level you can sort of shorten the time between code is finished and it's actually being deployed to production. I mean, there, I would even question, like, I I would see that as an even bigger problem. Like if you have every team being slowed down because you have a monolith, you have bigger problems. Um, (laughs) Like I remember. Don't tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I remember when my, in my previous company, we had a big monolith in the end. Like we we had a couple of uh, we had one other application, but the the two applications could the main one and and the the other one they could work independently, so that wasn't an, a big deal. The biggest bottleneck in there was uh, the tests were taking a lot of time, mm-hmm. but otherwise everybody was just you know merging at any point in time whenever they wanted. If we would have had faster tests then we could have deployed every single time. So it wasn't to be, it shouldn't have been too big of a deal. Yeah. Then you have other constraints, like in that case, it was a bank, so you cannot really do everything unless you have tested thoroughly X, Y, and Z, or you haven't received approval for W and whatnot. And then, yeah, it takes time. In yeah. our case, yes, we, like in uh, by our, I mean, my current company, there, when I joined, we had a big monolith. And to this day, we still have a bigger application compared to all the other services. So there is one service that is bigger than our than than the others. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was never too big of a deal to to deploy. So it's like merge and deploy. So we were already merging multiple times a day and deploying multiple times a day. Wow. Yeah. So was I until last week. <laughs> <laughs> there is other advantages, I guess. <laughs> <Are there? laughs> I don't know. That's your, I mean, it your, also... your goal for next quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Yeah, I guess it also all all depends a bit also on, on the state of that system and yes. how much of a problem it is or if and if it's easier to improve that system or to just figure out how to split stuff out. If you have multiple teams already, it might make sense. Yes. But for sure, 
it, it, having micro having services does help with um, speeding up deploys, uh, bringing the code to production to the users. Uh, yeah, and the the thing that we haven't even talked about, which I guess is not that much of a deal for me, it would be the scalability of the mm -hmm. service. Because, I mean, servers these days aren't that expensive. So you can just, I don't know, have your monolith and just add a few more. Mm. And you just need to read your, I don't know, performance tool a bit different if it's all together. But I That's guess. true. But there, I think that goes again up to a certain level of your business. So this is yeah. also something else in general, like scaling your architecture and scaling your org do go hand in hand. So it really depends. It's a continuous feedback between what the org and the business need and what the 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 technology needs uh, on on its side. Like if you, it's not so expensive up to a certain level. Once you start to have a seriously big one, then it might be more convenient for a company at that stage that doesn't have as much money as Shopify, for example, um, <laughs> to um, to cut costs. And how you do that? You extract stuff that it's uh, not as um, that doesn't need to scale as much as your main uh, core application, and that will allow you to to shave off some quite some euros here and there. That's true. I mean, it also also goes the other way around, right? Where you have this one part of the app that is just super resource intensive and you could scale down the basically core of yes. your, uh, your your system if, if that part was separated out. That's true. I mean, this is, I think, more where we are, where the cost cutting wouldn't be in the server builds, but in the developer's firefighting mm. yeah <laughs> and there's probably even a bigger bill, bill than a few more servers there are sometimes also business constraints for which you want to have a different a different architecture than than a monolith yeah. imagine you have two different markets with different regulations and uh, you have the core part of your product that uh, is fine for both but then you have to i don't know have different Maybe different authentication systems or uh, you need to collect different kind of data. Sometimes you can still do that within one system, uh, but sometimes why not extracting it? And then when you deploy your uh, your applications to uh, to the different uh, uh, locali localization, I guess, location, location, that's what I want to say. Yeah. Yes. Um, then you have different things to plug in. Right. So this one you yeah. build that way, that one you build that other way. Yeah. Or it, it sometimes also works the other way around where the actual data that is in the database needs to be located somewhere. Yes. And you Germany, end up with multiple hello? Germany well, basically any European company not wanting their data in the US. Yes. And more and more these days the other way around as well. You yes. naturally end up with at least two systems like that. And that is very true. What I was thinking was I, I I was thinking that it's very interesting when, what you said at the very beginning with, you know, you move the complexity from the code into the messages between services. Mm -hmm. And there you open a whole new kind of worm. Like, how do you make these services talk to each other? How do, how do you ensure that this whole system works, right? Yes. 
And there, I think it's also something that you do progressively over time and you move from one to the other. And one thing is that it, it's easy to get complacent, like speaking about scalability. Like, I think I, I also said this in the past, like until not long ago, we had all our services uh, communicating with each other via synchronous HTTP calls on an internal um, uh, network. Mm-hmm. And it was okay until it wasn't. Um, and then pile up a bunch of other small issues on top of each other. And then the system falls apart. So Yeah. Yeah. It's always, you. It, it works until a certain point, like you said, and then it suddenly just doesn't and the whole thing falls over. That's true. Yeah. And then... So there very often when we speak about services, then I don't know how many of us do, again, think from the very beginning, this is a whole new set of problems. How do I keep the system running? Because one of the big advantages of microservices or services in general is that in theory, you should be able to have a set of uh, features that keep working while one of the part of the system fails. Yeah, in theory, I mean, this is very easy to forget, right? <laughs> Even though this is one of the huge benefits you could uh, reap from a setup like that, where you say, okay, this is this is our core set service, maybe this always needs to run for the system to work. And there are these other things that if they are down for a certain amount of time, it's not nice, but it doesn't affect the core system directly right yes and it's i think it's very easy to forget when you split out stuff into uh, separate services to not build them in such a way that you basically couple them and when one is down everything is down and then you've made it at least from a technical point of view you made it made it worse basically yeah. instead of better and then you have to you have to see is it still an advantage for you because i don't know the uh, the organizational setup is just still better for you? Or is there maybe a way to redesign the thing to, to make it actually work like that? I think that that is what happened to us not long ago. So we do have a service that takes care of ensuring that the people that purchase our subscription have access to the product and vice versa. Those that don't haven't that um, paid they lose access to it. So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a gateway to some, to some extent. And when we, um, when we started looking at the, uh, at the whole architecture there, we were like, okay, what are the systems that are okay to fail? And what are those that are not? And we were like, okay, our, what we want, when we want. So we did this as a conscious decision. When we want the system to fail, because that's important is in two two instances, authentication of users. So if that is not up, it doesn't make sense for the rest of the system to run. Yeah. And that of the authorization of uh, access to the product. Because if that doesn't run, makes sense for not everything not to run. What we didn't imagine is that what happens when one of the other system fails and cascades, uh, and that cascades through the system or some external factor comes into play that makes the system misbehave. And then we basically ended up the DOSing our authorization system. And then mm-hmm. guess what? 
are not working anymore, even if in theory the rest of the system, like that 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 specific service was okay to keep running. Like the requests, the the amount of requests that made the service go boom weren't from external uh from 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 the outside specifically to that service they were to other parts of the system then in turn made everything fall down yeah and sometimes it is just really hard to to notice these things right so it's 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 fine in the beginning and then you don't think about it for a year or two it's and impossible. You've, you've built various services and then suddenly you end up in a situation like that that's why they teach us graphs people in college <laughs> That's why they tell us acyclical graphs, they are important. <laughs> um, but yeah, one thing that I started to realize after that incident, so I started reading a little bit more on, you know, scalability and how to, uh, how to react to problems and the like was that the people that are the longer in this, uh, in this um, uh, field, they tell you, forget about it, it will fail. Yeah. Something will happen. The only thing you can do is make sure that it doesn't happen again. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say that you need to make sure that you fix the one thing you've already yes. encountered. Yeah. And this is not only from a technical perspective. Again, it's also organization-wise. Because as you said, after one or two years, you forget. People come in the org. They go. Um, historical knowledge is lost. Um, there, there aren't so, such... I wouldn't call them strict, but there there aren't so many disciplined processes in place to allow for these things to pop up. So, I mean, a very basic one would be every time you call a service from another service in your architecture, you add a line to the graph that is representing the current state of the architecture. And then you would see immediately if you have um, uh, cycles in there, if you have yeah. loops, but nobody thought of that. Um, oh, did so you have real loops in there? We had. Oh. But it was like through different services. That's why we didn't catch them. Okay. It's like this one is calling that one. Then it's a sync job. God knows what happens. And this process starts from somewhere else and blah. <laughs> yeah, I, I encountered other loops uh, in the past where basically there was an infinite loop under certain conditions in one of the web workers. So mm. you could rend have random um, requests timeout because they hit that. Um, uh, uh, they hit that, and then of course Heroku, I don't know, stops you at, after thirty seconds or so. Yeah. Um, but if that happens often enough, you of course bring your whole system down, and then you think you don't have enough uh, service, uh, um, not enough resources, and then you spit up a few more machines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's just going to that continue and that. get worse, right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So sometimes even that can happen. Spinning up more makes it worse than yeah. having less. What about, um, because you, you said about uh, teams, right? Like one service per team and the like. Yeah. And we're talking right now as if these things do happen overnight. These transformations from monoliths to service-oriented architectures and from one team to multiple teams, they don't. What about those moments in which you have multiple teams touching the same code base, even if it's already split into services? I mean, I haven't worked in such a setup for a long time. I am now going to. I can tell you more in a few <laughs> weeks. But I can already see that this is sort of um, difficult because, I mean, we have we have this 
I mean, I, I, in, in my previous company, we had this nice setup, right? You work on your stuff, it gets reviewed, you merge it into master and it gets deployed. Sort of perfect, almost the ideal setup. Um, and here we, we are in this more difficult situation due to the multiple teams and the manual testing that needs to happen that we basically have to have a release branch and we have, have to cut mm -hmm. releases every two weeks and then they need to be tested and bug fixed. And then I would assume it would be nicer if you had smaller services, right? Because then you have smaller scope and hopefully you don't sort of get in each other's way. You don't have the issues that it's sometimes not even clear which team is responsible for which issue now, right? <laughs> yes. That's sort of, you have to, some product manager is responsible for that incident and he has to sort of knock on each door basically until he finds a team that's willing to take the bug, yeah. basically. Please take. <laughs> so I don't know, but it is sort of, that's sort of, you have to have the long-term view then and say, eventually we will think about how to split this up and mm. make this easier. We'll Do you see. have a code owner? code owner in which sense in in sense of like do you have someone that is potentially if there are conflicts or anything like that that can solve those conflicts in terms of like and i'm the owner of this therefore i say we do x or that enforces a specific architecture or design um i think uh, so i'm i'm the way i understood it i i mean i'm currently not on any team because my team it ha it will only form in two weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm currently somewhere in, in the limbo and I'm not You're really... You're a baby in... team. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really um, involved in all the processes that happen. Uh, but the way I understand it is that there was a basically a architecture workshop at some point last year. And now there's basically member developers from each of the team and one of the... VPs of engineering meeting regularly to talk about the architecture, mm -hmm. sort of make it a team effort and to sort of go into the right direction with everyone on board, basically. We do have kind of like owners of, we don't even call them services. It's more like realms. These are uh, areas of domains, really. That, mm -hmm. that That's what it is. I mean, usually these people are not the ones that really do say, do X or Y, but they are the ones that are the reference point within the organization when something around that specific service comes about. So there we we do have this kind of uh, ownership in, mm -hmm. in, in one in one sense. Another thing we're doing for uh, enabling ownership is that more or less, as you said, like historically, some things will always end up on Team X because they are the ones that the last work on that specific uh, piece of code or they are the ones that are working more often in that area and that service. Um, so also when it's time to, you know, fix uh, bugs and um, create new features based on user feedback or feedback within the company, that team... Uh, is also responsible for uh, for taking care of the specific service. Mm -hmm. So code owner in the sense of one team or not one person? Because that mm. sounds a bit, I don't know. It's twofold. So very often the code owner, so the engineer that is considered the owner of uh, how we call it, the guardian of that realm, is embedded in the team that 
has worked the most in that topic, in that service. Mm -hmm. When we have bigger services, like we have one that we call training service. And in there, we have two different, we have two big areas. One is about all the, all the possible ways someone can train. So imagine running, body weight, kettlebells, whatnot. And the other one is about how do we present to the user their training plan. Mm -hmm. And these are two areas of the code that are connected, but they're not intertwined deeply. So we have two different teams that work on those uh, two different areas. So the code owner of one belongs to team A, the code owner of uh, the other belongs to team B. We have people like me instead that are like, okay, whatever is out there that nobody owns, put it on me. (laughs) (laughs) We need someone, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to be there. So usually there is this correspondence, though, between the engineer that is the owner of, as I said, the the responsible person for that, and the team that that engineer works in, they Mm -hmm. end up hand in hand. Yeah, I I was just, I don't know. You hear, but the alarm bells were ringing a tiny bit when you hear a single person being responsible on that yeah. level. No, but that's why I I'm guess, like, yeah, it's it's not about um, actual coding, nor really being the one that decides what what's happening. But your opinion is has a little bit more weight, and you mm-hmm. are the contact point for the rest of the org when things are like improvements or new projects are are discussed okay yeah in that sense yeah that makes sense it's always nice to to know who to talk to and not to pick a developer at random and then never knowing if that was a good choice or not yeah yes all right um have we covered everything Mm, there are a couple of things that i still wanted to talk about one was about uh synchronous and asynchronous things you said you know you have to deploy things in a synchronous way well it's not quite what i meant so what i meant there was that if you split up stuff into multiple services then uh and then you start changing stuff mm-hmm. um it is of course more complex because yes. you have to make sure that if you change something you need to keep the old service old version around for a while uh because other services might depend on it. And then you sort of have to do a multi-step Definitely. approach, probably yes. even across various teams and keep that in sync, which I don't know, is probably not that easy to do. True. Yeah, that would have been also my comment. It's like, But that said, it's I'm not sure in these days of zero downtime deploys if it's that much. I mean, the difference is that you have multiple teams involved Technically, it's probably not that much different from, I don't know, migrating some database where you need to do it in two or three deploys. Yeah. So that's like the similarity. If you have multiple teams, I so each one of them is responsible for implementing part of the change, then I would see a little bit more friction in this. If it's the same team working on one feature and splitting it across different services, it's you still have to pay attention because, as you said, the system relies on something being there and you have to provide it. Otherwise, it might or might not happen, but you might go finding a little bit of issues out there. <laughs> um, uh, but overall, it's not too big of a deal. So we do have this configuration in which 
one team will open multiple pull requests in different services. Mm-hmm. And that team is responsible also for merging them and uh, and then deploying them in the in the right uh, way. But for we had at least one or two incidents back in the days where someone merged the PR uh, without knowing that there was another one that had to be tied uh, and be de- deployed earlier. And now we have labels for that. So do not merge until <laughs> this is merged. So pay attention. Uh, there is a big warning sign uh, yeah. in there. Um, and for the newcomers, there's always a story be- behind oh, yes. uh, processes like that. Yes, there's well, good it, it was It was really nice coming back to uh, to this company here. And I watched this onboarding video explaining the app. And the person doing it was, I don't know, explaining something, a story and why stuff is like that. And she, then she said, I wasn't there And then I actually did did remember because it was during my time that that, that <laughs> happened. It's fun how sometimes these stories just live on in the collective memory of the yes. company. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Yeah. I mean, yeah. other people stayed, so I guess. Yes. <laughs> If the org forgets, then it's painful. There is probably, yeah, two things that I wanted to, to add. So one was another perk of uh, having more services that is usually touted is that you can have teams that also decide not only about the design and whatnot, but also on the tech stack. Oh, yeah. We had this Elixir service in my previous company Ooh. that exactly one person touched because <laughs> the other t- others didn't dare to. <laughs> uh, yes, and this is my next uh, thing. It's like It can be easy-ish for engineers to pick up a new language and therefore, you know, be up to speed with um, deploying, uh, sorry, not for the deploying, for developing something in uh, with a new stack. What I never thought about, and, and I should have, but, you know, whatever, um, was that there might be, it's again tied to the org, to the org, and it might be that what you would like to achieve as an engineer is possible but it would put too much pressure on the infrastructure layer. So your ops people will have to work double as hard to maintain the system in an acceptable scale. It adds monitoring, logging, uh, all kind of you know further um, complexity, again, at that level, at another level, not, not the code. Um, yeah. So this is what I, I wasn't really aware Uh, in the past, I was like, yeah, we just, you know, we can try another language. Uh, and then when I was told, yeah, but you have only one ops person and that person is one and cannot do everything. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but it's sort of, I mean, the language is just one part of it, right? You have this whole stack. Exactly. You have to be sure is 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 on par with what we, you've had before, right? I mean, do you mention logging? then you end up with various formats of logging because it's very unlikely that all those stacks then produce the same kind of log. And then yes. you end up with friction there. And I mean, and as easy as it is to learn a language, then you have to learn the whole ecosystem. And it's just, I mean, it sounds fun, but for a business, it oftentimes doesn't make sense. I it's guess. very expensive. Yes. Uh, so it's something that needs to be evaluated carefully. And this is what makes sometimes 
hard. Our life as engineers, it's hard to quantify the advantages, while the disadvantages are pretty obvious. It's like, oh, we will need X thousands more euros per month to run this here and there and this way or that way. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the clients, the clients that connect to your microservices, so the front ends. And there, it's more convenient for us as backend engineers, like, oh, this is enforced domains and uh, domain knowledge, and this helps shaping the, the architecture this and that way. It's very convenient. We can deploy and we can scale. And then the mobile developers are like, now I have to call 20 different services to build one screen. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there it is also, there again, is this sort of also a bit the other way around, right? Because for for the best user experience there, you actually have to have multiple languages in production, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, there are so, stuff like React Native and stuff like that. But from what I've heard, they they work to a certain extent, but eventually they break down yes and then you are either stuck with stuff like that or you actually have to go down and implement it in whatever the manufacturer gives you that's also what i heard the other the other aspect would be that for a mobile engineer it would be more convenient to have that one endpoint that they call and and this is what i'm supposed to display so when you have multiple services you also have uh, versioning, you have a bunch of other things and you have to compile this one screen out of all these different calls. So that adds a little bit of overhead. Also, I think mobile developers out there shoot us an email if I'm saying quackeries, uh, <laughs> not use uh, worse terms. Um, it adds uh, networking calls and it adds uh, latency and adds a bunch of other uh, problems that, that we don't that as backend engineers, we usually don't don't think about. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. And I guess this is also why uh, one of the advantages of stuff like GraphQL, right? Where yeah. you would basically, you are able to figure uh, configure whatever data you want to have and have it all in that one place. And maybe it is the the idea to then, I don't know, it, you, could, you can then still, of course, have multiple services underneath, but exposing that to the front end, to the mobile apps is maybe not the best idea. But then it's added a complexity on top of that again, yet another system. Exactly. So your backend becomes actually middleware uh, fundamentally, um, and you have instead this uh, this thing in between that is, uh, that is acting as a, again, as a getaway um, from between the clients and and your backend services, there is a whole a whole new layer again. <laughs> All right, but I think now we have more or less. Ah, uh, I wouldn't call it exhausted the topic because no, definitely it's... not. <laughs> there's there's still so much to talk. Like even just in terms of patterns, someone named recently the Citadel pattern that it's a slightly different one. Then we can go briefly into monorepos or polyrepos and stuff like that. So. There's much yeah. to talk about. There's much to talk about, and we might come back it come back to it in a few months' time, I guess, mm -hmm. um, because I think it's also an interesting topic to explore. Yes. At least for me, as a developer, it's always a fun thing to start designing stuff like that and extracting things out and seeing how that works. So yes, <laughs> that that's another. We should talk about that next time. Like, how do you do that? What are what are the strategies that have worked? 
for you? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that has worked for me was to start with the tiniest piece mm -hmm. possible and turn it into a service. And did you have the, that service running in parallel with the old piece of code to test it out? Yes, and then okay. as quickly as possible, you switch over and then you gradually move stuff, I guess. Mm -hmm. I found that also from a performance point of view and to, to have the peace of mind that it actually is performant enough, it, I find it easier or nicer to just move the small things. And then you have a tiny bit and you can, then you can see. Yes. And it's unlikely that it's going to fall over right away. But you should be able to see if it's performant enough or if it's just getting by. And then you can adjust, I guess. I'm always wary, I don't know, wary of saying, hey, we, we I don't know, build our internal um, code like that, that we can afterwards just take this huge, huge chunk and put it on into a separate service. And then how do you even make sure that this works under the actual production load and stuff like that? Yes, that would have been one of the things I, uh, I also wanted to add. Like you can build a service-oriented architecture within a monolith. I mean, that's the whole point of classes, right? Like yeah. <laughs> that's what you should do, <laughs> modularize your code. Um, but then there's the whole underlying infra. Does this really withstand Uh, production load with the additional delay in calls, the the uncertainty of, you know, race conditions, all that kind of stuff. And it's often surprised the overhead of a of this additional HTTP call is oftentimes mm -hmm. surprisingly big. Yes. And how do you share a state among all those services? The user is logged. How do you mark that towards uh, across the different services and so on and yeah. so forth? As we said, there's a lot yeah. to talk <laughs> Let's about. Let's <laughs> stop here. Otherwise, we will never stop yes. today. All right. So where can people find you, Monica? Well, they can find me on Twitter, uh, KFMolly with an I. They, you can find me also on uh, GitHub as uh, Nirnaeth uh, for the token funds out there. Um, Yay. Yes. And, <laughs> and then I'm Dev2, same seas. Um, And in my invisible blog. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter and on GitHub as UJH. And you can find my blog at urbanhafner.com where there's exactly one blog post. <laughs> I think maybe I mean, there's even two. I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't checked in a while. Zero to one. Zero to one. That's the most important step. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you can also email us at hosts at expandingbeyond.it with your questions and your feedback. And if you like this episode or the podcast in general, it would be nice if you were to share it anywhere yes, you feel that it's worth sharing too. Thank you for the nice episode again today, Monica. As um, always, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.